to open your heart just sing it in your own way it doesn't have to be in pitch in melody in time just the way that it's flowing out of your own heart as you fold in for just a minute hello hello kites variety hello hello kites variety hello hello kites variety Hello, hello, Kitesh, Variety. Hello, hello, Kitesh, Variety. Hello, hello, Kitesh, Variety. One last time. Hello, hello, Kites, Variety. Hello, hello, Kites, Variety. Hello, hello, Kites. So my talk today is going to be pretty quick. <laughs> because of its uh, theme, it's going to be pretty quick today so that we can actually get into embody the theme and uh, that is meditation is simply the death of the ego and we can come up with all kinds of definitions about what meditation is uh, and um, but they're more like rationales you know and Rationale is not not really the the thing or the direct experience of anything. It's the explanation of controlling principles of phenomena or of your opinion of what is going on. I mean, that's our rationale. Our rationale for doing things is based on something, mostly our opinions. Um, And then we roll these into uh, fashion, other terms like, you know, our hypothesis, our theory of something. And then we put that under the banner of science. That becomes our science until some other rationale 
some other way of, or some other conclusion comes about, and then our science changes. So, the notion that we're moving towards with Western Buddhist practices, moving it out of the, out of its container, the repository of the, of the direct experience of the mystics and the sages and putting it into the science camp begins to change the fundamental essence of the practices and the fruit that they produce. And of course, if I paid 10 and 15 and 20 thousand dollars to uh, get uh, contemporary speak about the things that the sages gave to us for free, then I, of course, would have to have my own jargon so that I can charge you what I want to charge you to have a good life to help pay off the expenses I incurred to buy the contemporary speak. I'm just saying, you know. Um, and then, of course, you know, f because I think that is um, has been so valuably, is that a word, uh, expounded because it's so deep. Um, this new rationale and new science and these new realizations that are not new at all. We have to have a whole new jargon, a whole new way of explaining, a whole new way. I've got to have a whole new man speak. And that's how we get turned around and what started off really good with just a slight vector can cause us to utterly lose our way at the end. So Panya Deep and I were having a conversation this morning. I said, you know, we're about to get pretty unpopular. So we not, uh, better have to make sure the timing is right. <laughs> my timing's been off all my life, you know. <laughs> Just like when you're like poised right there to take off, you get like this reality check that goes against the tide. And <laughs> you go that way. But that's the story of my life. But that's okay because I truly believe that our actions are our only true home, no matter what it costs.
man, I'm gonna tell you, it does cost. Um, but I wanted to try to lay out a simple path for us today, if I could, that would not take a rationale. It won't take a PhD. It won't take 20 years of psychotherapy. It won't take uh, $200 a session. It won't take thinking we don't knowing that we are so messed up that we can hardly find our way. But it's like the plumber. Oh, God, do I have an experience with plumbers right now. (laughs) And now it's moved to electricians. I was talking to Satima. I'm going to get back to that. I was talking to Satima the uh, other day. (laughs) She said, uh, because first we were having all these problems, you know, like with, with water. And then we had like like the windstorm the other night. The windstorm was so powerful that it actually blew the meter off of the outside of the house for the elect- electricity. And so, uh, of course, you know, I was worried or a, a bit concerned, a lot concerned, because uh, our heat runs off electric which means, you know, we have the pipes wrapped to keep them from freezing, but it it takes electricity, you know, and and we had just made it through the water crisis, and now here the wind comes. So Sotoba said, we need to appease the gods. She said, first it was the water god, now the wind god. I said, well, we better hurry up before the fire god comes up on the scene, you know. But, you know, we're, are, are, it's like that. We're so used to struggling. And it's, it's really sad. So I'm asking you today to look at your own life. You know, I can, in times of, of joy, you feel naturally. You feel naturally connected. To each other. You know, we have brought a lavalier mic, and I think I should use it because I move my head around too much. So, hereafter, if we could have the lavalier, that'll probably be less distracting for me. Um, we feel naturally connected with everything and everyone around us. This, this kind of happiness makes us all right with the world, all right with, with uh, the, our outside life because. We see it through the momentary uh, contentment. And so, you know, everything's going good. Everything's going good. Everything's going good. And uh, you just won the lotto. And uh, somebody brings you some news. And, oh, don't worry about it. You know? I mean, you could just take it in stride. Because you're perched at that moment at or above your a happiness set point. But what we don't realize is that when we are in this 
state of mind, our ego is at its weakest. Our ego is at its weakest then. Because we feel no need to defend ourselves from anyone. We feel more connected to everyone. We feel no need to put up a defense, a barrier, a shield. We can handle what life has to offer us. Like uh, President Bush said one time, bring it on. Uh, Something like that. But whenever we experience mental uh, or emotional pain, anger, or jealousy, it is rooted in our definite sense of separation from someone. The one that I'm having what I consider this battle with, this challenge with. It's always rooted in separation. It's rooted in a sense of offense, a sense of disgust, a sense of rejection, a sense of humiliation. So in some way I feel denied, I feel cheated, I feel isolated, I feel rejected. Things like this. This is the ego at work. I am being denied. I am being rejected. I am being misunderstood. I am being accused. I am being falsely accused. I am the very prominent sense of my separateness from the the other. This is the ego at work. So ego then in a very practical sense we could kind of understand not with science speak but just with through natural understanding. We could kind of recognize it as non-awareness of our interconnectedness. Yeah? So for all of us non-science buffs, that's a way that we can you know, understand it and, util- and utilize the concept. I mean, you know, because the concept is only designed to help you understand the nature of something. We don't have to get all involved in the concept. But just look at where it's pointing and see where we find ourselves in that. So when we are so self-conscious in this way, in this non-awareness of our interconnectedness, then one could say that we're not uh, yet living. We're not fully living. We're not living the life. 
There is something missing, something that has definitely in that non-awareness, there's something that's definitely eroded or subdued or suppressed or obscured the quality of life. That's all I'm after. I'm after seizing the quality of life, seizing the essence of life, however you want to put it together. That's what I'm after. Seizing the essence and the quality of life. So self-consciousness, it's a barrier. You know, it's, it's a barrier to our, uh, our intrinsic beauty and our grace. You know, as a species, we're known as the Homo sapien sapien. You know, that which knows, the one who knows, that which knows Homo sapien. Sapien, that it knows. So that which knows, that it knows. So by our own definition of who we are, we who know that we know should be able to know something. We have the capacity to know what we know in every moment. Are you with me? So it's so wonderful for us to know that. Truly, I, I receive at least that. I'd like to shoot for something better than that. But I, I, I can say that I have the capacity as an ordinary human being to know what I know. Right now, I want to talk about knowing what we know. So if you just stay with me. If you let me give my talk, you know I'll explain the whole thing. Okay. Panya Deepa entertains questions in the middle of his talk. I give my whole talk, and if there's anything, any questions left, then you can ask me, because I don't want the whole group to lose their train of thought, because one person's mind came up with this question. Okay, so just stay with me. So when I look out, I see, I see your beauty and I see your grace. Now, the question is, can you see your beauty and your grace? The time to ask that question is when something else is arising and if you ask the question right then, then you are flowing in your homeo sapien sapienness. But we usually, in our, um, I won't say unskillfulness, but I will say not having, 
not being ex are exercised by reason of use, you know, like applying restraint, like not having developed a discipline so that we can address something in the moment without like just letting it go and then running and trying to catch it and get it back in the gate. If we developed the practice of in that very moment, when we feel something arising that challenges our concepts of what we consider beauty and grace, that would be our way of escape. That would be our movement towards freedom. So what really binds us is not acting on our capacity to know what we know. The thing is, what we or where we get our information from about who we are is what influences what influences the conclusion that we come to about ourselves in the moment. And in the world of psychotherapy, they talk about something called the default mode network. And this is called all under the heading of the science of of, uh, neuroplasticity. You know, that's our modern day term for some things. And we're talking about how we can, you know, where our neural pathways, uh, you know, these grooves that we get in through habitual tendency and that we can lay a new one. And, And after a while, we'll start to groove this way and that will grow over and this become a new habit or or new, you know, a new tendency. And all of that is is good and and it's been true not just because we've come up with it and we've named it something today. It's always been true. But what I do think that we are leaving out of this conversation in our bid to uh, contemporize it and to merchandise it and certainly to help and bring relief to people in their suffering There's been something left out of it from the place where the thought emerged. 
And that is the cultivation of right view. That is or has as its twin um, the cultivation of virtue that has as its precursor the willingness to do that which you would want done to or for you. And if we leave that out, we have changed the whole thing. And it will have some value, but it will never reach its zenith. And we will never truly be able to seize the essence of our life. We will live, we'll have some gain in this world, and we will die. And some of us want more than that. That is the purpose of a Dharma center for those who want more than just the ordinary advantages of knowing what we know for our personal gain, being aware of our interconnectedness. Now, I want to lay this out for you so that you can understand, like, you know, I used to always ask the question, what are you looking for and why are you here? So I want to lay out why we are here and what we should be moving towards and that this is a place for that. And with that comes a certain responsibility for everyone who is a part of such a community. That means that when there's an interaction of two and one doesn't do their best, the other has to really stretch and make up the slack in this way that one day I may be strong and another day I may be weak. But hopefully we're not all weak at the same time. And equally, maybe not all too strong at the same time. Because <laughs> we don't know what to do with that much dunamis, that much power. <laughs> but to create kind of a, a balancing container, you see. Now, this is all right to talk about when nothing's going on, but when something is going on, no, this is not a comfortable conversation, you know, because real time is often more strikingly personal than when we're just like blah, blah, having a conversation around principles and so forth. 
But it's kind of like knowing how to use our mindfulness correctly. The kind of mindfulness that I am seeing espoused, espoused in, at least in our diaspora, is not that much about how the Buddha laid out the whole thing. Yes, it is very, 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 very useful. I'm not denying, you know, even you have a whole bag of sugar and you give somebody a pinch, that sugar's still sweet. It's just that it might not be enough to sweeten your drink. Once it gets dropped into the whole container, that sweetness is lost because more was needed. Little problems, little. Big problems need a lot more. And we can just look at the direction of people's hearts. Skip mind even, just looking at the direction of people's hearts. And we know there's a lot more sweetening needed. I got an email uh, the other day that said something like, Got enough rage yet? And I constantly get these emails about rage. You know, like, just keep flashing the rage sign. What do you think will happen when you're teetering on the edge already? When you're already frustrated? When you're already confused? And you just keep flashing the rage sign. The rage sign. The rage What part of your nature do you think that query is uh, arousing? What part of your psyche? What part of your, you know, we have to be careful who we get our information from and, and how we allow information to come. Now you can follow that beacon with any number of words, you know. Well then come, let's talk about solutions. But the banner was what? What was it? Rage. Was rage. So the Buddha cautions us about using wise speech he 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 tells us to be careful in how we carry out even the best of attention in, intentions to make sure that we're doing it in the most interconnected way for the greatest benefit and he used to uh rebuke his disciples all the time. He said, when did you ever hear me say such and such and such and such? 
In other words, he was saying, like, if you're going to talk about it that way, keep my name out of it. So this whole thing about self-consciousness, if we could think of it as a, like, it hinders our innate beauty and grace to inform the moment. And we deviate or devolve into a different kind of behavior that is self-seeking, self-serving, self-protecting. And suddenly we don't know our own strength. The moment that you feel even self-conscious, like people who are extremely shy, for instance, actually, it's a kind of over-awareness of oneself. So, it is in a certain kind of way the opposite of the outer action. Shyness can be full of one's awareness of oneself. Now it takes a lot of wisdom to know how to work with that and unpack that. But it is a fixation on one, whether it's one's inadequacies or one's perceived superiority, it's still a fixation on oneself. And you think that people are watching you, that they're so concerned about what you're doing or what you say or what you're thinking or how you look. Ego has stepped in whether we recognize it or not. And we lose our natural self and a defensive self emerges. That one that's all the time weighing and calculating others' opinions of you. And you begin to see that this ego thrives on this sense of separateness. So the only way to uproot it, to let it die a natural death, then, or, you know, it's it's like what in, we think of like childlikeness, we don't mean like having you know, I can't even say having the mentality of a child because I, I take the mentality of a child over a lot of what I see as adult behavior and adult thinking and adult conclusions, really. You know, um, but that child-likeness is that, you know how two children can, they can like even fight over something five minutes later. They're friends again. They're gone on to the next moment. But not us. We'll hold a grudge against our sister for 20 years. 
Now, I'm not saying that if that sister was harmful to you, abusive to you, um, you know, you didn't come in joined at the hip, and even if you did and there was a separation, you, two different individuals. I'm not saying that you have to keep putting yourself there with her. I'm just saying she ain't got to be mad. You, know, you don't have to be hating. You don't have to... You don't have to hold a grudge. You might choose not to want a certain kind of energy in your life, but you don't have to have a grudge about it. That's what I'm talking about. Because the grudge is inside of you, and we live with that moment to moment as it just kills us softly, destroying our true capacity as homo sapiens sapiens destroying our true capacity to love and destroying our true capacity for happiness. In meditation, there is no place for separateness. Separateness in the sense of there is no need for struggle because I'm just folding in to myself. I'm deciding for a space of time to not fight. It starts with relaxing or abandoning our thoughts about everything. In the psychological world, they talk about under the underperformance continuum, a process of Sort of like daydreaming, where we're living in the past, reviewing stories, continually refining or concretizing an opinion about them. Or we're living in the future with our suppositions and um, our ideas of what somebody might be thinking about. Or, you know, like we'll even play out a scenario tomorrow when I see him. I'm going to say, or when I say, I know he's thinking this, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to act this way. So we're in the past or we're in the future. And that leads to a stress because there's a a destabilization, a deharmonizing, a not being in the present moment. And continually doing this leads us to an addiction. Addiction is not always around things like like drinking and eating and stuff like that. But, you know, we are addicted through habitual tendency around the ways that we think and hold and contain our views and fabricate stories. And then the mind doesn't know whether it's real or not. It just filters in and stores what you put in there and program and regurgitates it back up when you go through the search. Just like your computer at home. And there's 
a part of the brain, they say, that regulates our responses. And it's called the posterior cingular. And it's in the back of the frontal lobe. I mean, like, if you, if you need to know all of these things, you know. But the studies show that the posterior cingular deactivates during meditation. So this deactivation breaks the both the underperformance continuum and it activates the or uh, the principle of neuroplasticity and it uh, cuts the or intrudes upon the default mode network. You know, now, this is all of our new uh, science jargon. But the mystics say it so simply that it might be easier for us to get it without all of those things. They speak of just simply for a block of time. Being willing to, that's the first thing, willingness, suspend our conclusions about everything for just a few moments to allow the critical thinking mind that has formed its basis on snippets of information and recall and feelings, you know, the data that we have gathered through our six senses, it includes the mind as a faculty, a sense gate. And asks us to unplug and allow this mentality, materiality to reset. When the um, meter was blown off the house the other night, they came and they put it on, and voila! All the light was there. And I thanked them profusely. And I checked everything. And I left. Two hours later, I was getting the call. Paniwadi, everything's out again. So I called Duke. And Duke said, well, did you, you know, check the breakers uh, after he fixed remounted everything to the house. I said, uh, yeah, before we left, everything was back on. I said, as soon as he hooked the box on, because everything was on when, when everything, when the, when it went out, when the power cut, everything was already on. When he hooked it back up, everything was back on. He said, that's all I had to do. He says, okay, we'll send them back out. 
He said sometimes it tries to play catch up. The, and and it'll overtax the circuitry and it'll throw the breaker again because it has been out for a while now. That's the first that I heard electricity trying to play catch up. I'm like, okay, whatever. But would you just send him out again for me anyway? No. So he come he comes out again, and uh, he says, "Honey, why? How long did it stay on?" I said, "For two hours." He said, okay, so maybe he gave me the same line. Maybe uh, it was overtaxed because it was trying to uh, catch up. I said, explain to me how electricity catches up um, and pulls more power, needs more power to catch up than just whatever's plugged in. I said, I know I'm dumb. Explain that to me because I don't quite get it. He said, oh, well, that's all right. That's all right. Uh, but anyway, I, I'll just check, and um, and I'll throw the, the switch, and, and he did. Two hours later, I'm getting another phone call. Poor Ruth. She said, you know what? I'm so tired of walking back and forth across this courtyard. Said as soon as I get over here and get set up in the room, electricity's back on. I move back to my room in an hour, electricity's off. Before I could even finish moving everything, electricity's off again. I said, go in a room that's warm on the other side and just stay there. Because we'll have to wait until next week and, and really see. Because I'm thinking maybe we have a faulty breaker. I can't suddenly buy the notion that it has to play catch up when to make up the time for when it's off. It doesn't make sense to me. So I'll investigate it on Monday. And that's what the practice will help you do. It'll help you to sidestep this ability to unplug, even in the midst of something, when it's beyond your capacity to address it. It allows you then to be okay with that. And they say if the if the creek don't rise, like if I don't die before Monday, then I'll have somebody come in who has the capacity to fix it and tell me what we have to do. That's how we learn to live from day to day. If we don't, our frustration will take us away in our beauty and our strength will become obscured. And that's our responsibility as universal Sangha, students of the Dharma, to learn how to approach the day for oneself and how to try and strengthen and support our friends. This idea of meditation being the death of the ego, you know, this really, you know, we do a lot of teaching of meditation, but actually there's no need to teach meditation. We only pretend we're teaching it because people think they don't know and they're expecting f for you to know something and teach them something they can employ. You know, so it's sort of like this game we play 
right? <laughs> but meditation actually it it just simply happens. If you just sit for a few minutes and not react or respond to anything that arises in your mind, it's enough to get a glimpse of the possible peace that is available through this simple practice. The only thing that you will really face is a strong resistance from ego. And that's really what you're doing in meditation. It's resisting the ego through non-resistance. I don't like this. Okay. I do like this. Alrighty. I want to go and I want to go now. Just a few minutes. I said, just learning that whatever the mind throws out, throws out into the universe is, this is me, this is mine, this is myself. Just, just being willing to just sit with that until that whole box is emptied. And what you're left with is meditation. So then you can't expect this to happen in one minute, in five minutes, in ten minutes, without doing it continually. Not just when you come to sit in Dharma, or, or when you come for meditation sit, or when you decide I give myself this 30-minute block at home. But any time you have a minute, giving it a minute. Putting this into practice for a minute, even. For the next minute. I will just allow whatever thoughts arise to just come and go. I won't entertain them. I won't be entertained by them. I won't buy into them. I will just simply let them be. And one way that we help to train to be able to sit for that minute is to find an anchor, a place that we will root ourselves. And it could be in the awareness of the in-breath and the out-breath. So the in-breath and the out-breath, when you think of the object of meditation, you don't think of it as this concrete thing. But you think of it more of as a, um, an anchor, something that holds you steady. You know, if you think of a, of a, a, a yeah, an anchor for a boat, you know, and you throw it in the water to keep the boat in a certain vicinity, although the anchor does that, the focus is not the anchor. 
You know, the object of it is not about I got an anchor. I, it's the, it is to keep the boat from drifting off. Right? So we don't have to get all into the anchor as something. We just allow it to be the anchor that keeps us from drifting off, that keeps us stationary, that keeps us rooted, that keeps us still. And we learn stillness in this way. And we will notice our tendency to go off into uncontrollable urges reduces significantly. And that sense of beauty and grace becomes experienced in ourselves. So much so that when we act out in our old way, it feels extremely uncomfortable. We can know quicker we missed it. <laughs> yeah. You know. And even if we weren't able to restrain ourselves and not go in that way, we know we are going in that way. And maybe, you know, the Buddha says, think about the thing before you say it, before you do it. But if you weren't able to, by reason of, of strength, do it then, think about it while you're in the middle of saying it. And if you know it's moved, it's, you know, intention has shifted a little bit, stop right there. No. If you're in the middle of doing it and, you know, realize suddenly, you know, I thought I was doing it for the right reason, but now I realize it was really self-seeking. Stop right there. He said, but if you missed that and you couldn't do it then, after you've said it and after you've done it, then go back and reflect. He said, but after a while, that hindsight will become foresight, will become insight. Figuring out I blew it after the fact, you know. After a while, we will be right there and we'll be able to restrain ourselves in the moment when it arises. And then after a while, it won't even arise. This is it. This is the process. It's very simple. We can buy all of these books if we want to. I mean, people, our library is getting full of these contemporary science books. You know why? Because people go out and buy these books and they read three pages and like, I can't understand it. Here, buddy, well, here's a good book for you you might want to read. You know, so, <laughs> but I like my old ones because that is very simple for me. It asks me, am I willing to love? This morning I was thinking, the guy who owns the, the lake down there, and, you know, he's having to spend, I think he said it's costing a million dollars to repair the lake. And it's been in process since, like, about two months after we bought this property. I'm telling you, it was a beautiful lake when we bought the property. It's been a mud hole ever since. You know, we had to take that little part out, you know. Uh, but there it is. And, uh, and we optioned all of this land around our compound, you know, partly because we want to be able to have a buffer, you know. I don't want... Um, 
uh, an old uh, old hippie to buy this lot right here across the street, and and he wants to have a a party every weekend. You know, it's, so it some of it is just you know like good business sense, you know, and and what will uh, protect the the harmony and the simplicity and the quietude of the compound. But he really wanted to sell it, and he didn't want to option it. He wanted to sell it, and he gave me a six-month option. In six months, we couldn't, we had to afford to buy it. So he gave me a three-month extension. Nine months, we can't afford to buy it. So now he doesn't want to extend. He's had a realtor come and put the signs up. And so I was thinking about it because they put the signs up a, a couple of weeks ago, but I didn't notice because I thought that was our parking sign. And when I got on the other side of it, it was a for sale sign. He had replaced our parking sign with a for sale sign. So I said, oh, okay, so he really is trying to sell it now. So right away the thought came to me, okay, I hope nobody wants to buy it until we have the time to and the money to be able to, to buy it. And as soon as I said that to myself, that feeling arose. That, is that what you would want for yourself if it was your property and you wanted to sell it? And I said, no, it isn't, you know. I would hope for me, may a buyer come along quickly, you know. And I had to retract that thought and change my view about there being any hindrance for a buyer for his property. Now for myself, it would be wonderful if sometime in the future we get the money to buy it and it's still there. That would be great for me. But you see, the seed of wishing him loss for my gain is what is fundamentally wrong and unvirtuous. This is where the rubber meets the road in our practice. If we're not doing this, if we're not examining right there, we are not practicing. So we have to know what is the right way to view things. And then we have to step into it. We don't always win. That's not what's promised. It gives us no golden ticket to go to the front of the line. No special pass to get in the gate or in the door. It's just simply doing what is right whether it causes us to lose or whether we gain. It's knowing that we have treated another exactly how we would want to be treated. I'm not always right. When I'm not right, when I've messed up, I would hope somebody remembers the times when I have been right and recognize I try to be right and that
I'm not perfect and I might make a mistake. So when you make a mistake, I have to be thinking in that same way. And that's how we cover things over with dirt. And that's how we start over afresh every time we come together. This is where, this is what mindfulness is about. Really. It's very simple. And it's getting in a line. You could say with the golden rule. Just treating people like you want to be treated. Understanding when somebody has a bad day. Because you have them from time to time too. It's being right or correct and know that you are. But because the other person can't hear it right now. Not feeling like you need to say it anyway. Saving it for another time. Maybe not saying it at all. At all. You know, realizing that sometimes somebody doesn't have to tell you something. It'll dawn on you. Just give me a minute, you know, and I can figure it out for myself because I'm working on that. In these simple ways, choosing love, choosing acceptance, these simple ways, choosing to be merciful, choosing to cover someone with grace, choosing to let your beauty emerge, choosing to be the strong one who can bear, who can hold oneself up in the face of adversity, choosing to bear the infirmities of the weak. This is what our practice is about off the pillow. And then when we sit on the pillow, it's about surrendering, relaxing all of our notions about everything that have been formed and concretized through some momentary awareness or view, allowing that to deconstruct so that we can just see what things are afresh, anew, in the moment. And it says, and when we do this, we'll find ourselves no longer struggling against the darkness in our own hearts, in our own minds. Because every now and then, we give the brightness, its moment to shine. So if we could just spend these last five minutes. We've heard these words like default mode network and science of neuroplasticity and underperformance continuum process and 
the posterior singular deactivation and all of that. But the mystics use other words like tenderly, like a mother would hold her child. They use words like easily arousing beauty and kindness. They use words like radiant heart opening. They use words like graceful, gracefully. They use words like peace, the peace that passes all understanding. They use words like happily. May one dwell happily. So I'm going to use those words because they came to me as I was putting this talk together. And I'd like for the next four minutes, if you'll just folding inside, closing our eyes, focusing inward, using the breath just simply as an anchor. You don't have to dive into the water and, and really watch the anchor. Just feel the results of the anchor. That which keeps you in a certain area, in a certain region, in a certain realm of mind. That's tender. And these words came to me, it said, tenderly, oh tenderly, I fold into stillness and silence awakens inside of me, something like that, easily, so easily. Beauty and kindness, resilience and mirth come alive. Radiantly, radiantly, yes, radiantly, my heart opens wide, scales fall from my eyes, and now I see that freedom can only be found inside of me. Those words came to me. Gracefully, oh gracefully, compassion arises for friend and for foe deep inside of me. Peacefully, so peacefully, resistance and craving and fear deep inside waft away. Happily, yes, happily, a lightness of mind and delight of the heart comes spontaneously. That kind of freedom can only be found deep inside of me. This is where we go to find it. And if we give it a moment, 
to arise. It bubbles up all by itself. The more we experience tenderness, the more we see beauty and no kindness, the more our heart opens and scales fall from our eyes. We see things a different way and we decide that we don't want to hurt others. We don't want to do things that we've done in the past. And then we change. Gracefully. Compassion arises. I don't have to try to be compassionate. It just arises. Naturally. And a lightness of mind. And a delight of the heart. Comes. Spontaneously. This is how we come to know what we don't know. First, we have to know what we know and walk in that. And truth comes to us spontaneously according to the dictate of one's own heart. The Buddha said to know the Dharma is to know yourself. To know yourself. Your real self is to forget this false egoic self. And that puts you in resonance and harmony with everything. Then you'll come to know the 10,000 things. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.